Downloads of the show are available at Podomatic.com or the Podomatic mobile app. Hey kids, you are listening to Radio Free Brooklyn, and this show is Fish Out of Agua with Michelle Carlo. Today is Tuesday, September 18, 2018. By the time you hear this, summer is almost going to be over. Yep, the fall equinox happens on Saturday the 22nd. Are you sad to see that summer's gone? I kind of am. It's my favorite season, but I realize it's not a lot of other people's. So... Are you the type of person that feels more productive when the autumn comes? Do you get that back-to-school feeling? Do you feel like after a season of what you perceive as inertia, you need to be all of a sudden starting to do stuff? Or does autumn's promise of chillier weather make you want to chill? Hmm, that's a question we're going to ponder while this chill song plays to open our episode.
we're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. Well, I kind of feel all relaxed. I almost forgot to talk. <laughs> that was Bombay Dub Orchestra, the Electronica Orchestral American Band. I think they're American. I wikied them. I didn't see that they were British. I think they're American. And this song is called Monsoon Malabar from their Three Cities album back in 2008. And if you thought that the theme for today's show was going to be kind of dub reggae chill, you kind of would be right, but you would also be wrong. Because our guest artist this week has fingers and toes in many different genres, one of which is a little bit on the funkier side. As in this song that this week's guest artist handpicked to open their episode.
me now. Now, if the song before made me almost forget to talk, this song made me almost forget to stop dancing. This was One Nation Under a Groove by American funk rock band Funkadelic, fronted by George Clinton, who also had another band called Parliament. You may have heard of Parliament Funkadelic, but Funkadelic was kind of the more psychedelic rock version of them. And this song was from their Young Soul Rebels album back in 1978, recorded two whole decades before Bombay Dub Orchestra's Monsoon Malabar. Okay, so now we have two sides for coin. We have a funky side and we have a chill side. Bet you can't wait to see the guest artist that ties these together because I know I can't. All right, kids, get ready because now it's time for my favorite part of the show, 
Whoa, whoa. Everybody. Welcome to Fish Out of Hogwarts, guest artist of the week! I am so excited to bring you our artist today. He has his fingers plugged into a lot of light sockets. Please welcome poet, artist, educator, activist, uh, and more. We're going to find out. Patrick Dower! Thank you. Thank you. So, Patrick, um, we're going to talk about how and where we met. That's right. Because I ask everybody this at first. Two years ago, I thought it was a year ago, but then I, I started thinking. I, was, I realized, yeah, it was, yeah it was, it, time just yeah, it was, it was in May of 2016 yeah. at Channel 13, That's PBS, right. WNET. They put out a call for entries for the show they were going to do called 66th and Broadway. Mm-hmm. And it was, if I remember right, it was uh, they they wanted an array of. Artists from different, like different mediums, Di- right? Different, like different disciplines. Disciplines. And they wanted New York stories. They wanted New York stories. New York-centric material. Yeah, and they got you, which was great. And they got you. Yeah, yeah. And um, um, it was filmed in front of a live audience uh-huh. at Lincoln Center. Mm-hmm. And it was very fancy. Very we, posh. We, 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 had, we had a green room and everything. Oh, my God. Makeup, the whole Yeah, time. makeup. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. And they never aired it. It's online, but it, they, it never aired. Which made my mom so sad. I know. Mine's too. So, anyway, um, we were performing the same night. And I remember I was there with a, a friend that I know from my old performance scene, Margaret Dodge. And I think you went on a f- couple of people before me, mm-hmm. and you did some spoken word stuff, mm-hmm. which hopefully we're going to get to hear a bit later. All right. And cool. um, I was just blown away. I was mesmerized. I was just like, this guy's so good. Uh, and then, you know, we became Facebook friends, uh-huh. but we haven't really seen each other in two years. Which is crazy. Like I said, I can't wrap my head around time. But we interact on Facebook all the time. All the time. Thank uh, God for Facebook. Yeah, yeah. Seriously. I mean, there's a lot wrong with it, but, you know, it's good for some stuff. Some stuff. Yeah. So anyway, 65th and Broadway open mic. So let me say, that 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 experience that we shared at WNET, it was great for all the reasons that you just said. But one of the things that I really appreciated is when you went on, it was that same thing of like, you know how, you know how we recognize each other? You know what I mean? Like, I, ne- I never knew you. No. Didn't know you were on the planet. No. As soon as you started speaking, I was like, oh, I know her. Like, I know your story. I feel like we hung out, we speak the same language, you know what I mean? And there were so many things that you uh, were talking about. Well, we're both old school, though. Yeah. We're old school. Old school Brooklyn. We're old school, yeah. Well, I grew up in the Bronx, but um, let's get back to Patrick. Yes. So um, you are born and raised in Brooklyn? That's right. Wow. I was born in 1963, Kings County Hospital. Is Kings County Hospital still operational? It is. Wow. I have so many people that, um, that were born in Brooklyn hospitals that don't exist anymore. That's right. They closed a bunch of them down, but yeah. Kings County is a you know like a mega hospital, uh-huh. um, and it's still there. It's it's raggedy as hell, but it's still there. <laughs> so I was born in Kings County Hospital, um, and many many years later, about forty years later, um, I worked there as an art therapist. I worked with um, HIV positive kids, kind of during the height of the AIDS epidemic. Mm. Um, so it was. There was something about going back to where I was born and working with young people who were, you know, sick um, in the place I was born, you know, that Kings County Hospital is, is iconic. So 
Um, kind of like a coming full circle type like of thing. It's like a full circle, wow. you know, giving back to where I was born, yeah. Wow, giving back to where you were born. I like that saying. Mm-hmm. So how many generations has your family been in Brooklyn? Um, two, I think. Two. My parents met in Bed-Stuy. So my, my mom is African-American. My dad is Irish-American. Bed-Stuy uh, in the 50s and 60s was, was still, it was like a mixed neighborhood. It was, you know, uh, a lot of Irish-American. It was working class. So it was a lot of Irish-American, a lot of Italian-American uh, newly immigrants, and then African Americans coming up from the South. So my my parents uh, have a unique love story. Uh, my father being a Irish Catholic, second generation Irish guy. Tell me he had red hair. He didn't have red hair. Oh, he was man. he was what they call black Irish. So oh, he was, okay. He was dark. When it, we moved to Bushwick when I was like uh, four or five, and and that neighborhood then was mostly uh, Puerto Rican, mm-hmm. and he was mistaken for Puerto Rican all the time. He oh, I'm Puerto sure. Rican. I'm sure. He had Puerto Rican swag. I'm just. Looking at you, I could just picture him walking yeah, down was, the street. He was dope. Wow. So, do you have siblings? I have two older brothers. We have different uh, fathers. Like, oh, okay. Like a lot of our stories. Because mm, I was going to ask if you had siblings from the same mom and dad, if you all came out rainbow. No, that happens a lot, though, right? Oh, yeah. So, um, the family that you grew up in, was were they education or performance oriented? Were they no. artistic at all? No, they were poor, working class my, my mom was 21, and she already had two kids, and my dad, I think, was 23. He worked in a paper mill. They were A paper uh, mill in Brooklyn. That's in, right. There was a lot of manufacturing you know, lot of in manufa- Bushwick and, 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 right. and Williamsburg. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he actually worked in Williamsburg first, and then he went over into the city. Because we're talking like the, seven, the late 60s, 70s. Late 60s and 70s, yeah. a lot of industry. All Yeah, Greenpoint, Williamsburg, uh, Bushwick, they had a lot of factories. Yeah. Um, and that stuff became, obviously... Well, <laughs> you can't yeah. you can't live in those mm-hmm. neighborhoods mm-hmm. now. But Talking my 40, father, forty five years ago. No, yeah, it's more like yeah, ago. like fifty years ago. Yeah. I'm glad I was born when I was, because when we were born, because I think we we were lucky to see so much change in our lifetime. Mm-hmm. You know, and we were the last generation of kids to have complete freedom I as teenagers. So. I think so. You know, for better or worse. For better or worse. Yeah. I've been um, slowly compiling a memoir. Uh, I got the title of it, which I want to call. Um, uh, Notes from an unsupervised childhood. Oh, I like that. Because that was kind of like how I lived. You know, we ran, like you said, we ran the streets. We had the, all those street games. And, um, and you know, just because of the way my, the dynamic in my family, I, I should say alcoholism and drug, and drug addiction is a big thing in my family, too. Mm. So I wasn't, I wasn't supervised that much. And so I got to see a lot that I probably shouldn't have saw at a young age, but I'm, I'm grateful for all of it now because... I had some amazing experiences. So I've been chronicling those slowly. Were you the only artistic child in your family? Yeah. Did you know you wanted to be an artist from a very young age? I didn't have language for that. I knew that I I, I was drawn to art, um, but there was no reference. We had one art book in my house, I remember. It was called The History of Art, and it was a big, big book. I don't know where my dad got it from, but it was full of European art. Mm. And at the very last couple of pages of it there was a page or two of what they call primitive art which was african art and indigenous art and i used to pour over that book and i did you know i always i was always creative i was always drawing or writing or um you know trying to make music um but we were very poor so that wasn't promoted mm. as a as an option both of my parents my father dropped out of high school uh i think in his sophomore year just like i did and my mom uh, dropped out, but then went back to school. But they both read a lot, so there was a lot of books around. Mm. I wasn't encouraged to read, but having the books around, but the books were there. Yeah, yeah. I know that you're 
a multidisciplinary artist. Did you start out with visual art? Yeah, I did. When I was 10, we moved to Flatbush, East Flatbush. And I lived walking distance to the Brooklyn Museum. And I loved art. I was drawn to it. But I never went to the museum. I would pass it. But somehow I knew that that place wasn't for people like me. So I never went there. Did you think that a museum was a place where only white people yeah, went? Yeah, absolutely. And that's, I mean, I would watch who was going in the museum, and it wasn't me. It wasn't anybody that looked like me, at least not in the 70s. So um, <laughs> did you go to a specialized high school? No. Nah. I went to regular public school. I had one art teacher who took an interest in me in, you know, fourth or fifth grade. And I think she, incur she saw something in me. Um, but there was, honestly, there was so much going on in my house. There was so much um, dysfunction in my house mm. that I, I really couldn't focus on art. But Were your um, parents, like, breaking up at that time? They were. My, my dad was drinking a lot. My mom was working really hard. My brothers were going in and out of jail. There was just a lot of shit. And, um, so you're the youngest? I'm the youngest. Uh, and I was going through my own stuff, too. So, so, I, uh, so art wasn't, like, a realistic uh, pursuit. I, was also, I also got into music around that time when I was a early teenager, my girlfriend uh, bought me a drum set. Wow. That's, you know, I I, I'm still in touch with her, and, and I, I thank her every time we speak, cause, uh, she, because she did that, the trajectory, the trajectory of my life changed. Wow. Why, why do you think that's so? Because I gravitated immediately to it. It oh. kept me off the streets, because I was practicing. My brothers were out there doing dirt, and I was home trying to learn how to play the drums, and the drums took me to... Uh, you know, I was on stage with Sade. I played in front of Prince. I, you know, I, wait a second. I, you, you're so you, you became a session musician. Absolutely. I played oh, I uh, with Sade. I played in front oh of my Prince. God. I, I'm, Gen I'm genuflecting on the <laughs> air right now. Yeah, I've done a lot. I, um, I uh, am on one of the most popular reggae albums of all time called Dub Side of the Moon. I played drums on that as well. So I know Dub Side of the Moon. Yeah, I me. love that. It's a great album. Oh my God. Check the credits. That's me playing oh the drums. Oh, my God. So, yeah, so her giving me that drum set literally changed my life and, and opened all these doors for me. Um, by the way, that Dub Side of the Moon, which is one of the most best-selling uh, reggae albums of all time, I got $600 for it and a CD. Wow, do you get royalties at nope. all? A record session musician, it's like if you do print modeling that's or something, right. you're for hire, and you get paid for the thing that you do, and yeah. that's it. The music is what really got me into the city. So I, I left, uh, once I got good enough on the drums, and started playing And you're bands. living in Flatbush. Teenager, living in Flatbush, which by that time was mostly West Indian, so I grew up with Rastas and mm. West Indian, so I was heavily into reggae, which led to ska, which led to punk rock, and got me into the city. And that's where I... We go to the mud club, CBGBs, Danceteria, Peppermint Lounge. We probably met back then, yeah. you know. Cat club, cat yeah, club, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Tier three, tier uh, all those spots. I was there. Wow. Um, as well as Paradise Garage and and the area. You know, I'm sure I met you back then, or at least saw you. So, was music your way out then? Music and art were definitely my way out. Absolutely, and like I said, I say it all the time. It saved my life because, uh, you know, I. Up until that point, I was, uh, you know, I had dropped out of school. I was uh, selling, Why did you drop selling out? weed. My dad died, and, um, oh. and I thought I was a man. And I had a job, and I was hustling. And Were you in 10th grade, 11th grade? I was in 10th grade. Oh, man, that's not spirit. It's young, yeah. 16? I got my GED, though. Um, and I did very, very well on it. I scored really, really high. I could have gotten into college immediately, but um, I was hustling. And uh, my brothers were going in and out of jail. My cousins were going in and out of jail. But 
it opened the door. It got me out of Flatbush. It got me out of hanging out in the street. Well, I was still hanging out in the street, but I had a purpose. Right. It's different. This 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 different. This different. You can be in the street, but not of the street. There you ah, there you go. You There's know? another. Yeah. I'm keeping that. In la calle, not por la calle. I love it. Yeah. I, I might have messed up my Spanish syntax there, but you know what I mean. So um, so you never did get to go to college? I did not go to college. At all? Mm-mm. Wow. So you're a totally self-made man yeah. as, as far as education yeah. goes. You know, I always, I always read uh, a lot. And I still, you know, I read like a book a week and I always have. Um, so I think that was a big part of it. And then I also hung out with a lot of smart people. Mm. Um and that would challenge me. You did, know? You, did you hang out with mostly older people? Yeah. Okay, so you're trying to like, yeah, yeah, I get yeah, yeah. it. You want to be, be on their levels. You know, also, like, um, I think th- I, I always had a, um, a hunger for learning more. Mm. And, I, and I have to say this, college w- would have been a great thing. It would have been a great opportunity. It wasn't realistic to me. I had a son uh, when I was 20, so I did work to take care of him. Um, no one in my family ever went to college so it was a foreign concept and I'll be honest I knew a lot of people that went to college and they weren't it didn't make them in my opinion any smarter mm. you know what I mean they they could say that they went to college but they were still to to my mind they weren't really learning that much so I never really saw the value in it I was I've been very blessed in that my life's trajectory hasn't really needed college, but I know that's rare. But you, but you created your trajectory. I, really I, I, I don't, I don't know if anybody could replicate that today. I don't think so. I, I don't know. And but, well, let's let's get let's let's get um a little bit backtrack just a tiny bit. So, were you making your living as a musician? I your... mean, I always had side jobs and side hustles. Okay. But but in the late mid to late eighties, you know, that time there was a lot of. There's a lot happening in the city around art and music. Mm-hmm. So if you were, if you could hustle, like I was a studio assistant down in Soho, um, and like I said, I always had, I was always able to talk, and um, I was always able to maneuver in different, with different types of people. So I could, I could get myself into doors, you know. So mm-hmm. I was working in a pretty hip gallery in Soho. What was the name of it? Um, Schiffer, Schiffer Gallery. It was on West Broadway. Oh, yeah, West Broadway was just like Gallery Central. I remember, it was popping. I went to the School of Visual Arts. I was there in the early 80s, and we used to do what we used to call being so hopeless. Mm. We would go go and try to sneak into as many openings as we we could. Get free wine. Yeah, get free wine, get the crudité. Hell yeah. Because that was the the big thing. No one ate, like, raw vegetables. Um, I remember standing next to Basquiat at Mud Club and thinking, yo, this dude is mad corny. Like, I really... I was... I'll be I'll be dead honest. I was thinking I should rob this cat because it was what? obvious he had some money, and I just thought he was really really corny. But did you do things like that? Oh uh, yeah. You robbed people. Yeah, I did. Oh shit. I did a lot of dirt. Um, I I, I did not like in doing my life, it, but I I did it. And then I also should say that you know drugs and alcohol also played a played a big part mm. of my. Oh, so you were you were too. using it yeah. when you were young? Yeah, yeah. And uh, I got sober when I was thirty eight, thank God. But because um, it almost killed me, but. I think that also, you know, you don't make good decisions when you're high. No. You know? No. <laughs> you don't no. make healthy decisions. No. No. Uh, and I spend most of that time high, so, or, or on my way to What was your high. drug of choice? Um, I drank a lot, but I, you know, I was a garbage head. Like, whatever, whatever I could get my hands oh, on okay. was, was, was all fair play. Wow. Wow. I can't picture you being that way. Yeah, it was I look at t- you right now, and you just seem to be the picture of health. Bursting with vitality and, the, and strength and, and, and spiritual and, you know, centeredness. 
Yeah, I got sober. I got I, I did a twelve step program. Um, it's been seventeen years that I've been clean and sober. But up until that point, uh, I had to hit a really, really bad bottom. You know, like a lot of us do. When you got sober, did you was that the end of your mu- music career? No, that's actually that's I did Dub Side of the Moon after. That. I got sober in two thousand one, and I think we did that the following year. So no, it didn't. It didn't okay. at all. Mm-mm. When did you segue into visual art, or were you doing visual art all along? I was doing visual art all along, but not taking it very seriously. Were you self-taught? Yeah. Or did, yeah. Okay. yeah, totally. All, all of what I do, I'm self-taught. What, what, what were your artistic influences, would you say, for both visual art? I mean, we know that for music, it, it's the dub yeah, and, and the reggae, and, the reggae and, and, and rock and punk. And punk. Yeah, 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 yeah. All that stuff. But for, vi- for visual art, who were your influences? Um, did you like Basquiat? Yeah. Or did you think he was like... I, I, like, I can't believe I, you were going to... <laughs> yeah, I was I was totally gonna rob his ass because oh he's just he was corny to me. A lot of those guys, you know, that I don't know, man. I was coming from a different place, and I and maybe it was envy, but I, I later respected his what he was able to do. Um, and our stories are really a lot similar. He's also I think he's also from East Flatbush. Mm. Um, and I he, remember seeing his tags at NSVA, Samo. Samo. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Or Samo. Yep. yep. Um, so anyway, so he was he wasn't really influenced actively early on. I was more into like the older artists like um Romeo Bearden and uh Charles White, um a lot of the uh older African American artists um I was uh, influenced by, but I didn't I didn't um I wasn't I wasn't really studying anybody that much, you know. You were just doing your thing. I was kind of doing my thing. Yeah, a lot of the graffiti stuff too. I did was you, really were you a writer? I was a terrible writer. Oh, I was terrible too. I did it, but I was I, so bad. I was, I, I was so toy. I was toy. I was so toy. Um, I was no, totally I was more toy. toy. I'm going to win this it's one an, because I was a toy. You were really super I, I, toy. I was super toy. <laughs> I was super toy. I was super toy. But, yeah, yeah. I, I, was, I was trash too. But years later, I worked with young people and, and uh, I was directing uh, a program director of a mural organization called Groundswell. So we did you know, hundreds of murals around the city, and I would always talk to the kids and, sit, and tell them the story of me and my graffiti writing. Oh, what was your tag? Uh, it was, well, I had two. So okay. I had uh, War. Wars, it was Wars 1, so it, was, it read War Zone. Oh, okay. And then... Because um, War was, was a crew. It was Writers Are Respected. I know. So I put Z on. It was Wars. Oh. And then Wars okay. 1, so it read War Zone. Mm. And then I had one God Body, which is I still hold on to. Oh, that, you still have that as a hashtag st- for, for your social yeah. post. But, I, but I was, I was Shell. Shell? S-H-E-L-L. That makes sense. Cause yeah, yeah. Well, it was like, yeah, that was yeah, my yeah. teenage nickname. Yeah, yeah, yeah that yeah. makes sense. So um, what was the turning point for you becoming more of who you are now? Because the, the Patrick that I know, I see you're like an artist, educator, and yeah. activist. So yeah. when did you get into, into teaching? When did you get into that work? That you know, that was, that was random. I was working. Um, I, I, so I used to take kind of any kind of job I could get. Mm-hmm. Right? Like name some of them. Oh, I've done every. I was a security guard. I was a construction worker. I worked as a, a secretary. Secretary. I, yeah, I did any anything I could get. I, I'm grateful because that. with all of those different kind of jobs, I picked up you know another skill. Like you know what I mean? I learned how to maneuver. I learned um, how to deal with people from different walks of life, and I learned you know different skills. But I, I literally that that was a different uh, world too. I you know I. I would get friend, uh, jobs by referrals. So mm. a friend would say, hey, I'm working at the museum, man. You should apply. I'll get you in there. And so I was working as a curator's assistant at the Museum of African Art. I had no skills. I just, you know, 
But you were working as a in. you were working as curator. Yeah, assistant. Assistant curator. Yeah, yeah. But were I you, learned a lot. Were you bringing up your son at this time? Were you with yeah. his moms? No, I wasn't with his mom, but I had him on weekends, um, as whenever I could. Uh, he's always um, been in my life. He's my best friend now, and um, and I always paid child support. This is why I always had to work. So I took a lot of different jobs. Um, anyway, so I was, I guess, in the mid '90s, I was working in an art store in Park Slope on Seventh Avenue and um, 12th Street. Oh, yeah, that place, um, it, it, it was a big one, That's and right. now they only have the framing part. That's right, it used to be framing and art, mm -hmm. art supplies. So mm -hmm. Mario, Mario well. Romo, God bless him, who was like a mentor to me, um, he hired me, he saw something in me and hired me, and he had me managing the art store. Uh, and one day this woman came in and said, hey, you're really great, you should think about uh, teaching art to mm. young people, because you you're relate well to people. And I was like, I bet there's some extra money. And so I started doing that freelance. Um, Where? Uh, first out of Brooklyn College, then with studio in the school, and then a bunch of little arts, Brooklyn Arts Council, oh, a lot yes, of those, yes. those small, like, kind of free. So they would send me into schools in um, Brownsville, East New York, Bed-Stuy, that didn't have art programs, and I would kind of act as the art teacher for a couple of months or, you know, for a project. And I did that through the 90s. Um, so again, I had no school, and I used to wing it. Um, but can't I, do that now. Now they want you to have master's degrees have master's and all degree. kinds of yeah. stuff. But that started me on that trajectory, though. Wow. Do you think that you influenced any child then? I hope I and, did. And, like, made, them, made an artist out of them? I hope I did. I mean, that was a long time ago. Those kids are adults now. Well, yeah, those kids would be pushing 40 now. Probably, yeah, in yeah. the 30s or 40s, yeah. yeah. Later on, when I became the uh, program director of Groundswell, which is about six years ago now, seven years ago, um, those kids were older. And I've been able to be in touch with some of them, and some of them, yeah, they're they're practicing artists. They're pursuing their dreams of the art. We helped them get into art school, and you know, some of those kids are we're doing are doing amazing. I don't, I'm not taking any credit for that, but I think it is important for um, young people of color, young people from financially disadvantaged background who had upbringing similar to mine, to see like a successful person of color doing mm -hmm. art yeah they, you know it can be done yes um i i, I totally b believe in exactly that too that mm -hmm. the they need the kids need to you see need that this that. is a viable yep. life choice yeah but you know you also need to know the realities of what you need to do to sustain it that's right you know that you need to have some kind of day job unless you marry a lawyer yeah you know but there's ways if there are ways to do it and it can be done you know there's a lot i i used to have to talk to parents a lot especially parents of immigrant kids cuz you know the immigrants parents are like my kids are not going to be artists i didn't like struggle to come to this country so that my my kid can be an artist they got to get they got to be a lawyer or a doctor and so i would have to often talk to them about like their the idea of being an artist is just not as simple as somebody in a studio in a smock all day there's tons of different ways you can pursue an art career. You know this. Um, they could be graphic designers. They can be, they can uh, work in art administration. There's tons of things that they can do. Uh, you could be a sound engineer. You, you could be, be a makeup artist. Absolutely. You can be a set designer. There's tons of things that they can do that are still creative and, and, and will make them a good living. Um, so I, I used to have a lot of conversations around, you know. Because they don't know. They, they, don't, don't, know. they, they don't know. I, I interviewed many first-generation people, like yeah. immigrant parents, from, you know, from the Caribbean and from other countries, and basically artists are dirty. 
artists, oh, yeah. artists are sucio. They're degenerate. Yeah, yeah they're degenerate. Mm-hmm. You know, they're whoas. Mm-hmm. They're <laughs> They don't. They don't pay their rent. They don't pay yeah. their drug addicts. They yeah. don't make any money. Yeah. yeah, I mean that starving artist thing is the, is a real thing. So I get we it. Gotta, we got to we got to no. We're breaking that. We're yeah. breaking. We're dispelling that stereotype right now. That yeah. artists can be sane. Artists can be sober. Artists can be whole. Artists can be healthy. Artists can be. They can be we people. Can be. That, and we not can only be that, we can be people that that uh, didn't come from privileged backgrounds. I think that's super yes. important. You know, at right. least in my story. But I feel like in my and probably this probably applies to you too. I don't have a choice, and I never did. If I think about my life, um, everything I did uh, was gearing me to be an artist and a musician. Like, I had no choice, you know? Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I'd work on a construction spot and, and take, you know, during my lunch break, I would take pieces of the wood that we just broken up and, and try to make a sculpture out of it. Like, I, I have no choice. So, so yeah, it's part of you. You're driven. You yeah. have to do it. If if you don't do it, you die. Yeah, that's the whole reason why you're alive is to make something so that someone knows you were here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Totally. I have something to say. That's the thing. Like, yeah, I, I don't think it's as conscious as me being like, I need to create this because I need to let you know I was here. I don't. I just have to do it. It's impulsive, you know. And I think that same obsessive and compulsive piece of me that, you know, drove me to drugs and alcohol. I've channeled that into creativity. And you were doing artistic things all through when oh, you, yeah. you were using years. Yeah, yeah. I actually, you know, I fell into that 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 stupid um, belief that drugs and alcohol make you a better artist. You know, mm. Basquiat fell into that. A lot of a lot of artists and musicians did. We we fell into this thing that because you know a lot of the heroes that are propped up, especially musicians, the mm. Hendrix and the musicians that I looked up to. Had habits. And for writers, it's drinking. It's drinking. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Bukowski was my man. Oh, my God. So after you became sober, did you notice any changes in your art or the yeah. way that you approached art? Yeah. I mean, I got I got better. In what way? Technically better or yeah, creatively techni- better? Both. Technically, creatively, more driven, more organized. Um, everything in my life got better when I got clean and sober. But the art that I created when I was using, um, it was expression but it it was you know I couldn't fully focus on the art because I had an addiction to feed. So once you remove that part and you can start seeing clearly and focusing, um, yeah, the art got much much better. Um, wow. Everything got better. So what mediums do you um, you do for your visual art now? And I noticed that you do a lot of collage. I do a lot of collage, and that came out of um, you know uh, working in offices because I had to work. That had Xerox machines. Oh yeah, so use that day job. Do that, do that man. That's, that's right. free Xeroxes. Hell yeah. Also, that was the time when a lot of um, punk rock art and even hip hop art we were using a lot of um, Xeroxes, right, mm-hmm. to create like images, um, subversive images and stuff. So it came a lot out of punk rock, but also just having access to access to Xerox machines. So free uh, art supplies. So I always made a lot of collages with Xerox machines. I still do Xerox collages. Um, a lot of the art that I do now, the sculptural stuff is from found objects on the street, like flattened cans and pieces of rusted metal, um, and that also came out of necessity. When I when I got sober, I was homeless, and a friend of mine let me stay in his recording studio in Greenpoint. Um, and next to that studio, there was a metal foundry or metal recycling yard, and there was just tons of like flattened metal and rusted metal laying around. And I started thinking, like, oh, I can do something with that. Like, I don't have enough money to buy canvases right now, but I can probably do something with this this stuff on the street. 
Um, so what did you make, like found objects, mm -hmm, sculptures? I started making sculptures based on African art because I had some background when I worked at that museum. So just using pieces of rusted metal from the street and then flattened cans, um, using them as a canvas to put Xerox copies on. Were you showing at this point? Nah. Never? Mm-mm. Just making it at home and keeping just, it at home. Just had to make it. Do you do you have all your art that you've ever made, or did it just like? Uh, it's. I mean, I sold a lot though. Oh, okay. I wasn't okay. necessarily necessarily showing in like galleries, but I um, people. I've been really blessed. Like people have always gravitated. So to they've been I've so they've been collecting you. Yeah, there have been, there have been some people that have like since when. Since, uh, well, since I got sober, for sure. So, so since the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. And I didn't call myself an artist until last year. Really? Uh, no. I would never claim that. People would say, oh, you're an artist? And I would be like, no, 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 I do art. I'm not an artist. Why is that? Because, to my mind, an artist was somebody that went to school for art. An artist uh, was someone that was worthy of that title. And I wasn't. What? Yeah. I never, I, only this last year huh. did I claim it. Wow. And that, that, is, and that was through some real, like, self-examination where I was like, nah, man, my life is, is proven that I'm an artist. So yeah, why, your whole life why is... Why don't I it, own it, that? Yeah. 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 The, lately, you've been an arts administrator? Yeah. How, I, how did you segue into that? Because you worked for Brick for a while, right? I did Brick um, in, in an interim position as the uh, director of education at Brick. It was an amazing experience. Uh, and I left there last month. And before that, I was six years at Groundswell, which is... Uh, I think it's considered New York's premier community mural arts organization, mm. um, and that made a huge impact. And we worked with big city organizations and Rikers and detention centers. And again, that was one of those things where I showed up, the opportunity arose, I knew somebody who was working uh, at Groundswell. I had been doing youth work, and they were like, you know, I think you'd be good in this position. You should interview uh, and I had no qualifications on paper, right. you know, but I had life quali yeah. qualifications, yeah. But you, you just made your own way, and you forged your own path. I, I showed up. God did it for me. I just showed up, yeah. And that, sometimes El Senor puts you in a place, you, and you bloom where you're planted. And Yeah, yeah. And, and so I take credit for showing up and doing the work, but there's been a lot that has been like, there's things have lined up for me just so uh, wonderfully that I have to, I have to, I'd be foolish not to think there aren't higher, you know, purposes at work. I, to, I, at I work. totally believe that. I, I see the hand of El Senor in my life many, 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 many times. It's Absolutely. there. It's Absolutely. there. It's, it's, it's so there. So um, the other part that you do is writing. What, the, what, what have mm -hmm. you been doing with that over the years? So I've, I've written poetry. <coughs> uh, I've written music. I put out an album in the early 2000s um, of my own stuff. Uh, and I've been working on my own uh, short stories that will eventually, hopefully, be uh, sort of a memoir. But there, there, there are factual stories that came from my life uh, and the characters that I met and things that I did. But then there's also like some kind of creative, funny short stories that I've been putting together. Um, and then, like I have done some poetry. Wow. Well, a little Pascal says that you're going to share one of these little stories with us. Story, I'll do the poem. Okay, yeah, do a poem. Because I feel like everything we've been saying has been stories. So That's I'm true. That's stories. true. That's so, true. Um, I'll do I'll do that poem that I did on uh, WNET. Oh, great. I mean, I've done a bunch of poetry, but I like that poem because it feels like it fits in with what we've been talking about with New York. And I think any time that I talk to uh, Native New Yorkers that uh, are from our era and have similar experiences, there's a sentiment that we share, which is like a sadness that the city isn't what it was. Um, 
anyway, so the poem is, um, first came the hipsters to tame the land, to pacify the natives, the original man. And then the settlers and homesteaders brought the cavalry to stop and frisk me, making it safe for the yuppies. And now I don't recognize the block where I was born. They came from places with backyards and big lawns like West Bubblefuck, Michigan, and Okie Dokie, Wisconsin, moving in like they slumming. They keep coming. Now my culture been rezoned. My house ain't my house and my home ain't my home no more. They brought in their money and moved out the poor. They raised up the rent and changed the locks on my door. And now I ain't welcome in the corner store no more. Yo, on my block, Ock, what the fuck? We got a yoga spot, pet grooming, and Starbucks. And since when did the so-called ghetto get trendy? They're making me homeless and smiling all friendly. They're smiling your face. And all the time they want to take your place. Gentrifier is a liar who will conspire to take your home, your earth, wind, and fire, and you wondering why your rent's raising higher and higher? Because these are the days of the gentrifier. Gentrifier got this thing on lock. My home, my zone, my hood, my block. Gentrifier, incomplete control. Steal your land, steal your style, steal your street, steal your soul. Gentrifier got this thing on lock. My home, my zone, my hood, my block, gentrifier, incomplete control, steal your land, steal your style, steal your street. Hey, yo, I don't know what the Jeffersons was talking about, but we ain't moving on up. We getting moved on out, no doubt. You see, to them, it's monopoly. All they want is your property. Shit, I should have bought Park Place, but now it's too late. This used to be the ghetto, now it's prime real estate. And where the hell am I supposed to go? I can't afford their co-ops. I can't afford their condos. Yo, they're doing us like they did the Native Americans, except this time they didn't set aside reservations. Fixing up the block in the train station, building high-rises is gentrification. All the little mom-and-pop shops bought by big corporations with no vibes or flavors or connections to the community is gentrification. And my whole damn hood is looking like colonization. Less brown skin and more white skin. Is gentrification. Now they look at me with scorn on the block where I was born. It happened so fast, didn't see it coming on. And now there's new maps, new lines being drawn. But these are the days of the gentrifier. Gentrifier got this thing on lock. My home, my zone, my hood, my block. Gentrifier in complete control. Steal your land, steal your style, steal your street, steal your soul. Gentrifier got this thing on lock. My home, my zone, my hood, my block, gentrifier, in complete control. Steal your land, steal your style, steal your street. Stole my soul. Yeah. Snap, <laughs> snap, snap, snap. Did you ever do that at the New Eureka Poets Cafe? Do you perform? Do you I, I have performed more? it. I have, yeah. But um, New Eureka, I'm, I'm so intimidated by that place. Really? Yeah, man. Why? I've seen so many amazing performances over there that, like, I just, I so was like, do, I can't get do up. Do you do open mics and stuff? I've done some open mics, but always, like, kind of, like, you know, I've been on stages, like I said, I've performed with big names. I've been all over the country. As a musician? As a musician. Something about doing the spoken word makes me so nervous. Oh, okay, I get it. Yeah. Um, what are you up to these days? When I had that realization that I'm an artist, right? Last year? Last year. I was like, if I'm an artist, then I got to do art. I'm going to pursue this full time. And, and that's what I've been doing. And things are, 
things are starting to come together, you know. Well, I just saw a social post where you, am I allowed, we allowed to talk about the Ava yeah, Day? Yeah, okay. You me. sold one of your paintings to Ava Day no, it, no, no, I didn't sell it to her. They want to use it for, I hope she buys it, but they want to use it for her new Netflix documentary. On the Central Park Five. On the Central Park Five, which is a case that, you know, is very dear to me. It means a lot to me. They found me. I didn't, uh, I didn't reach out to them. They, wow. Somebody at uh, Is that Netflix, something where they found they you? Found, they found me, and they liked that piece. So we did a little negotiation. So they'll be using that for the documentary. But um, I have people that have been collecting my work. So my bills have been getting paid, and I've been very disciplined. Are like, you going to have an art show anytime soon? I have. Um, so I got a couple of lined up. One, I believe, in October, Great. Philly, and then one in San Francisco at uh, Fantastic. the Museum of uh, African Diaspora. So I aspire to own one of your artworks. Well, let's talk about it. Yeah, after, you, after you, the show. You got to have one. After the show. Yeah, after you the need show. to have one. Um, so um, if people want to find out more about you and your fabulousness, where can they do so? So I just, this is another amazing thing. All the years that I've been doing art, never had a website until uh, last month. So it's www.godbodyart, G-O-D-B-O-D-Y-A-R-T uh, dot com. And then on Instagram, uh, it's my name, Patrick Doerr. Are you on Twitter? I am not on Twitter. Okay. I got enough distractions. But you're on Facebook. I'm on Facebook. Okay, so like him on Facebook. Yeah, yeah. Like him on Instagram. Yeah, yeah. Buy his art. Yeah, yeah. Buy his art. Say a prayer for me. Yeah, definitely. Oh, many you, you, you <laughs> are. So, Patrick, if uh, I always ask this question of everybody when we come to the end of our chat together. If you had any advice or encouragement to give to a child in, in your situation mm-hmm. when you were young that knew they had a burning desire to be more than the world around them gave them the right to mm. want to aspire to be. Mm. What would you tell this child? I would tell them that they can do it, that they absolutely have the right to do it, that they're worthy of it, that they should know that it's not going to be easy. We've got to be twice as good to get half as far. I'm not going to sugarcoat anything, but it can be done, and they deserve it. And moreover, we're need- you're needed. Your voice your valuable, precious, important voice is needed. So never edit yourself. Never second-guess your vision. Um, but know that it's not going to be easy. Um, we live in a society where, unfortunately, we don't get the same breaks as other folks. But that doesn't mean that we can't make our own opportunities. So um, do it. Just do it. Like, don't look behind. Just keep going forward. Leap and the net will appear. That's, that, that is on my refrigerator, and I look at it every morning. Because if it was easy, everyone would do it. That's right. You are a wise man, sir, and I am so glad mm-hmm. that you were on the show. I'm so glad to know you. Hug on Give the air! Hug. Give me a hug! Woo! Mm. We always end yes. with a hug on the air. That's important. Woohoo! Yeah! And we're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. Your valuable, precious, important voice is needed. And that word of wisdom from Patrick Doer, artist, multi-everything, leads us to this announcement that Radio Free Brooklyn is proud to announce we've been partially funded to start an after-school program for local teenagers in 2019. This program will teach Brooklyn-area teens about media and media-making using a hands-on approach guided by local radio and journalism professionals. Each teen will create their own radio show, which will air on Radio Free Brooklyn on a new, dedicated stream. Sounds great, right? 
except we still have a long way to go to make this program a reality. Please help us make this program happen by going to RadioFreeBrooklyn.org forward slash after school and donating what you can. Each donation is tax deductible to the fullest extent of the law, and you'll have the fuzzy warm feels from knowing you've helped the next gen of radio broadcasters and journalists get a head start. Well, we're going to close our show with the song that Patrick played drums on with the Easy Star All-Stars. It's the dub reggae version of Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon, called Dub Side of the Moon. How cool is that? It came out in 2003, and this song is Us and Them. Stay tuned for Brooklyn Bandstand next, and we'll see you next week.
Mm-hmm.